0: Got a couple of people. Again, not going to ask you to go and do anything. We just, we're excited that you made it here today and that you have chosen to be here with us. Now, I have to tell you, I was uh, going through and getting ready for this particular message. We're in a sermon series that Pastor Josh has just uh, called Christian Atheist. And the concept here, Josh has been telling us that Christian atheism is uh, when you claim to have a faith in God, but you don't really act or live like you believe what you say. It's it's saying I believe one thing, but but I'm acting a totally different way. So we thought we're going to look at this here today and continue on with the topic, which I'm not going to say it's a topic of fun. I'm going to say it's more of a topic of funds, but I don't mean it that way. This is not. I'm going to stick this out here because I've used this before. Oops, sorry. Stick that out there to remind you what it is that maybe we're talking about here today. And I, and I tell you right now, as soon as I put that out, pulled it out, I saw some of your eyes get big. It's like, uh-oh, it's, uh, they're going to ask for money. No, this has nothing to do with asking for money. I promise you, this isn't that at all. But I do want to say this, in comparison to the Christian atheist concept, most Christians believe that God owns everything. If you've been around church long enough, you've heard that and you've said that. We believe that he has a stewardship plan for us also. But yet many Christians live as if God has inadequate resources and that he has nothing beneficial to offer us when we need help with money or managing possessions. That's the Christian atheist. We say one thing, but how we live and act is completely different. Because again, as Christians, if we believe this and we behave differently, that's exactly what this Christian atheism is. And we want to just talk about how that impacts us and how to make it different in our life. And so I've titled this message here today dollars and cents. But not as in coin, but as in common sense. S E N S E. So started thinking about that and I realized not too long ago, probably when I was a kid, maybe some of you that were older, and when you were small and you just realized that there were some topics that you just did not talk about in public. Namely sex, politics, or finances. You just didn't discuss those. It either just ended in an argument, or you just realized the other person didn't know anything, or they knew more than you wanted to know, so you took off. It's just, that's all there is to it. So I did some research to see if that's still the same kind of adage, the same mentality here today, and I found some opinion polls from the year 2020. I want to have a kind of my version of putting the information up there. Just I'm going to read through there, but you can look up there, and you can kind of see some stuff going on. The question was asked... What do you consider as taboo topics for discussing with others? You can see up there that there's a a phrase and then a percentage. 39% of the people said salary or household income was taboo topic. Don't talk about it at all. 38%, the size of a retirement saving. 32%, how much debt you have. 25% is either how much you plan to leave to your kids or how much you expect to get from your parents. That is the kind of the conversation there. You go to the next slide, and you'll see, just going to go through there, marital problems, religious beliefs, political views, sexual orientation, mental illness, personal addictions, sexual harass- harassment, and racial harmony. Somewhere between about 8% and 39% of the people put all of those out there. When I looked at it, and if you went back and looked at that first slide, we put those four together because the top four things that people said that were taboo topics dealt with money. Again, he went through there. Salary, retirement, debt, and inheritance. Don't talk about it. The rest has kind of become okay to talk about. It's dropping down on the list. And so I found it interesting that that was the case. Then I kept looking, and there was another poll that I found that really caught my attention. But this one really kind of disturbed me a little bit more. And it just said, who would you turn to when faced with a major financial event or decision? Okay, okay. Who do you turn to? Where do you go? Financial advisor, 45%. Spouse or significant other, rather high also. Rely on my own knowledge. I don't know if that ever really works well for me. I don't know about you guys, but okay. Articles and online resources. Friends. Father. What else we have? Oh, there we go. Mother. Extended family member. And I laughed because in parentheses it said, everyone else you're related to except your brother or sister. And then comes your siblings, okay? Like siblings, sorry, we just, we just are never going to be high on the authority list, okay? Famous financial expert, co-workers, and then there was a category for other. Why this was disturbing to me is when you ask the question, where would you turn when faced with a major financial event or decision? Did you notice that there was no mention of Bible, the church, a pastor, anything to go along with something religious, At best, that falls in the 3% category. But most people in our world have a place that they would go, and it's nothing to do with what a lot of us come back to, which is the Bible. I guess that's the biggest takeaway for me, that God, the creator of all things, and God's word, the authority in all things, we're not even a part of, as I wrote, a healthy financial discussion, nor a resource when making a healthy financial decision. It just wasn't part of society. And yet our Bible talks a lot about dollars and cents. And so I want to look at some of that. Here's just some kind of other quick facts to throw at you. 16 out of 38 parables in the Bible talk about money and possession. In the gospel, there's nearly 300 verses that deal with money. In the four books, the first four books of the New Testament, almost 300 verses there. Throughout the Bible, there's about 500 verses on prayer, about 500 verses on love, and about 2,400 verses that deal with finances and stuff we own. Jesus himself spent quite a bit of time talking about money and possessions and how much these two are critical in our lives and how much they impact us because even though we don't like to admit it, money is the major competition for the allegiance of our soul. It is what wants to grab a hold of us so that we can't allow God to do that. It is the biggest factor that is fighting against us. Matthew 6:24. We've heard this verse before. I took it out of the message. It says it a little differently, but it reminds us it says that you can't worship two gods at once. In loving one god, you'll end up hating the other because adoration of one feeds contempt for the other. You cannot worship both God and money. You just can't do it. So I think and I hope I've made a big point that the big deal here today as we talk about is money or finances. Maybe the money that you earn or the possessions that you have, the the cash that you save, the funds that you spend, the finance that you have control over. Whatever it is, it's you and money. And, And I know when I wrote this out, I was thinking, Just putting God, you, and money words in the same sentence makes people uncomfortable. Like, just as I look out there, I can already tell. Some of you are kind of squirming a little bit. Some of you put your head down. Some of you look away. Some of you are reaching for your wallet. Some are clutching your purse. I mean, we're talking about money. It's like, I just, it's a little unnerving. And so that's not the goal here today. I don't want to make anybody embarrassed or uneasy about this. So I thought, hmm, I have an idea. Now, this probably works a lot better with younger kids, but, but I know you guys can come down to that level just fine here with me, okay? I, I'm going to play a little mind game here. We're not going to talk about you and your money. I'm going to put a little twist on this morning and have you look at things from a little different perspective. In fact, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn this around literally to have you think of it a little differently. We're not going to talk about you and your money anymore. We're going to talk about your neighbor's money. We're going to talk about their possessions, and we're going to talk about their attitude when it comes to finances. So if you're sitting next to somebody, you didn't get it, nudge them and say, hey, Pastor Mark's going to talk to you about your money here this morning or your finances, you might want to listen. <laughs> and, and here's, for those of you that went, ah, all right, he's just given me free reign to check out and take a nap right now. Because he's not going to talk to us. I'm going to encourage you, if you would, please take good notes here this morning. Just in case your neighbor misses a key point And he happens to come to you later to have you help him fill in the blanks of what he didn't hear. Okay? So if you've got something to write on, please do. And again, I'm having fun and just kind of poking around a little bit here. But I want you, if you can, take some notes. Grab a Bible. We're going to look here in Luke uh, chapter 14 we to look towards the end of it, verses 25 through 33, and read through a passage of Scripture uh, that's just called The Cost of Being Disciple as we dive into this concept of dollars and cents. Luke 14, 25 through 33 says the following. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sister, yes, even their own life, Such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, he says. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying, this person begun to build and wasn't able to finish He goes on to say, or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one who's coming against him with 20,000 men? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other army is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. And he concludes, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. So this whole passage is talking about discipleship. It's what Jesus is sharing to people. He kind of begins it by saying that. He ends it by saying that. And he puts some illustrations there in the middle. Right in there, Jesus is making a point. I tried to write this down and I'm going to say it a couple times because it's just kind of tough for me to, to wrap my head around. But I think it's important. Jesus is saying that to be a disciple of his requires an intentional commitment made with a realistic estimate concerning the personal cost to the follower. Hear that again. Jesus says to be a disciple of his requires an intentional commitment made with a realistic estimate as to the personal cost on the follower, the person that's making this decision. Christian discipleship isn't a theory. According to Jesus, we look at here, it's a hard reality. It's something that is difficult to do. He says in that last verse, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Now, now I want to stop here for a moment and say, this is not the same phrase or the same terms that are used when the scriptures talk back in the book of Mark or back earlier in the gospels about the rich young ruler where Jesus says, you must go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. This is not the same verbiage that is used in here. When you go through and you look at this, the verb that's used here and the way it's written says, those of you who do not give up everything, that's what the verb says in Greek, those that do not give up. A stronger use of that verb would be that you have to give something away. So there's giving something up versus giving something away. Jesus is saying, I need you to give it up. He doesn't say we have to get rid of it. He's saying that we need to yield our right as, as owners, not necessarily commanding us to dispose of our possessions. It's not go and sell it, get rid of it, but be willing to give it up or give away the ownership of it. That's what Jesus says that we need to do. And so when we think of it that way, we can understand a lot easier how somebody can then be a steward of God's possessions. Because sometimes when we think we have to give it all away, and we think of the rich young ruler, and I know that people have heard that message, and then they think, oh, I just always have to sell everything I have, get rid of it, and then I'm just poor and have nothing to to live on. No, the Bible isn't saying that. It is saying, though, we have to have a change in mentality from this is mine and I own it to recognizing that it is all God's and he owns it. And what God has allowed me to do is to manage it, or as the Bible says, be a good steward of it, so as to best use it for how God wants. If we look at that and understand that, it all comes together It really boils down to can we have things in this world but not hold on to them so tightly as to saying they're mine? Because if so, I think we may be asked to sell it and get rid of it and do away with it. But if we can have things and recognize that God has allowed us to have it and to manage it and be a good steward of it, then God can continue to use it because stuff is in our world. We do need things to survive, we have them around. I started thinking about it, and in some ways, it's it's like a car that I have. I have a, a large, white Ford Expedition. It's a 2007. It's a 15-year-old vehicle out there now. But probably 10, 12 years ago, uh, Lisa and I uh, received it um, through... Kind of an inheritance. We didn't receive it outright. We had to purchase it from the the estate. But her parents had passed away. And we did some things. But it is an expensive vehicle when it was purchased. Trust me, this isn't a bragging. This is because I see cars now way more than this. But at the time, that was a $50,000 vehicle. It's a big old boat on wheels out there. If you guys ever see it. Like this, I could take you all out for lunch and then take you guys all out in it later for dinner. Like, there's a lot of room in that vehicle. It is awesome, and we love it. And Lisa and I bought it. We got it for a great price, but we brought it home, and one of the things we said is, wow, what a, a blessing. And in one hand, I kept thinking, woo, $50,000 vehicle worth. I better park this thing. I better clean out my garage first, and then I could park it in the garage and protect it, right? Then we realized, as we talked about, it, no. God's allowed us to have this, to use it for ministry, to use it for things that need to be done. And I kid you not, we agreed to that, and it wasn't but seemed like a couple of weeks after we showed up in town with this newer looking vehicle that the youth minister comes running up to me and says, hey, can we use it to take it to camp, throw a bunch of teenagers in it, and I promise we'll keep it clean. (laughs) God put that to the test right away. And we admitted, we we talked about it, this is what we said. And we went, obviously went ahead with that, and, and it worked out fine. And, and that thing has been up and down to camp so many times for, for kids' camps and youth camps and men's retreats and different things. It has been used for ministry, and I would still say it would be available if something needed for ministry. I'm not saying if you want to take a joyride in it or if you want to do driver's ed with your 16-year-old in it. That's not what I'm loaning it out for. But it's there for ministry. That's what we've looked at it as. And we've been blessed by having that. That's the concept. Are we willing to give it up, not commanded to give it away? I, but I want to look at the middle section here because it talks a little bit about what Jesus gave us, which was a consideration for discipleship. And it doesn't say it this way, but I want to kind of say it's almost Jesus' verbal prerequisite for us to think about before we sign on to be a disciple, before we go down that path. Verses 28 to 30, you're going to see something that I just call estimate the cost. As we read through that passage there, we can see that Jesus says, I want you to consider what's going to be involved before you do it. Because as we're going through there, he's looking at it, he says, estimating the cost is super important. If if you have any work done at your house or on a job or anything else, a lot of times you get a pre-appraisal or some kind of an estimate ahead of time. If you don't get a good pre-estimate or pre-appraisal, it is easy to fail on the backside because you don't have enough funds ready, you don't have enough set aside, you're not planning for what's going on, you could have an incomplete project, you could face public ridicule, in this case here, just be called a fool. Like, that would still apply to us now and then. If you ever drive by and you see a building that just is partway done, you just think, what was that person thinking? They didn't plan very well. They didn't do those things. That's all Jesus is saying here is plan it out, consider the cost. And then he goes down in verses 31 and 32, and he says, you need to seek wise counsel. It's the story of a king that's getting ready to go to war. And it says that this monarch decides, before I go, I need to um, talk to other people about the possible outcome that I'm going to have based on the numbers that are out there. Because as we read the verse, he was greatly outnumbered. And if that doesn't work out well, then I need to maybe even consider the concept of buying some time until I can regroup, regather, and come back at this and do it again. It's this idea of seeking wise counsel, because sometimes we don't always think of things on our own. Estimate the cost, seek wise counsel. That's really what it's talking about here for discipleship. It's something that I bring up when people come and talk about wanting to accept Christ. And what does that mean? I make sure that we share that there is some cost involved here. Because we don't want to just lay it out and pretend that it's just just easygoing forever. But I also thought, since we were talking about finances, that we could take these same two considerations for discipleship and maybe just reword it some because it really applies also These are two concepts for finances that are found in those verses with the same title that I just gave to the others. Estimate the cost, seek wise counsel. If you think about it from a financial point of view, estimating the cost really would be a matter of figuring out what it's going to take to do something and have a plan for it. Now, for a lot of us, that is just, that's the B word, the budget. Or coming up with some kind of plan. Like many of us don't like to have a budget or to plan something out ahead of time. See, there's a difference between a, a budget and maybe an audit. You, you're planning something out ahead of time. Auditing is you're checking up on it later. You're, you're reconciling what's going on. You can reconcile all day long and find out that you went way over plan. That doesn't really help you. The, what we're talking about here is just having the beginning part, which is building this budget and looking, about, looking at it and thinking about what it is that needs to be done and how things need to be done as I estimate what the costs are financially in my life. And so what that really boils down to is thinking in advance what your money that God has given you to manage is going to be used for and how you're going to account for it and how you're going to live within the means of what was given to you, whatever that amount is. There is always a chance to go over. And many of us have done that. And in a moment I'll mention that. It doesn't go well for us. But if we learn to live within our budget, within our means, it's actually not meant to be kind of a a bad word or a word that we all run from. It's meant to be something that will encourage us and empower us and protect us from outside plans from coming in and trying to take over the plan that you have or that I have or that your neighbor has. That's what we want to look at is talking about building this budget. And there's, there's many paper forms you can find. There's many things that you can look at that are online. There's some great apps. One of them is something that we've talked about here at church. It's called Every Dollar. It's a There's a free version. There's a paid version which has more bells and whistles to it. But it's just an online, or excuse me, an app version for you to put your money into budget and to track it and to plan it in advance and then to be able to, to it and then for your phone to even kind of say, hey Dodo Bird, you're overspending now, don't do that. I don't know if it says it those exact words but it's something like that. I think it is a great concept because sometimes what happens is I just squander money. I might have even designated where it was going to go originally but in the moment I forget about that designation because I'd rather deal with the here and now and then that causes a problem later. Because as many people know, there's times that we say that our money has run out before the month did. And that is not ever okay for us. There's a pastor named John Maxwell. He says, a budget is simply a plan that tells your money where to go and what to do. Instead of wondering where it went and what it did after it arrived there. It's just you telling it what's going to happen. It's not... Rocket science—it's probably even just sixth-grade math. It's—it's adding, it's subtracting, it's coming up with stuff, but it's—it's having control over what God has given us. That's this first part of estimating the cost. The second part, as I mentioned, is um, just like this: dumping the debt or getting rid of debt, because debt is when we say, "Oh, we've exceeded our budget," and your neighbor has gone well beyond it and overboard. And so, what they're doing is they're borrowing on tomorrow's pay to do stuff today they don't have enough for today so we're borrowing on what's coming up in the future to take care of now and i'll deal with that later but we all know that dealing with that later usually just means it keeps going further out and further out and further out and further out and it doesn't ever really come back unless you get crazy on board with making that happen if you've ever read much or taken biblical financial courses, you've heard this verse here before. Proverbs 22, 7. This should be up on the screen here. So I'm going to ask if you guys, and if not, I will read it for you. Uh, if it comes up on there, you can read along with me. It says that the rich rule over the poor, and the one who borrows is a slave to the one who lends. The person that borrows becomes a slave to the one who lends. And I don't know about you, I never had it in my heart to want to be a slave to someone or something until I met Christ. And then I realized that works. But all the rest of that stuff is competition for how I relate to Christ. So we don't want to do that. We don't want to have the debt. We want to get out of it. But I will tell you this. Getting into debt is pretty easy. (laughs) Getting out of debt is definitely not. You have to work hard at it. You can do it but you have to have a plan and you have to be able to say I'm going to work at paying this off and make sure your payoff is within the budget also. There's a lot more to talk about on that but that is a, a basic concept there of scripture. That's estimating the cost. The second one I mentioned there was seek wise counsel and I would simply say this is the concept of saving and then turn around and investing. When you read through Scripture, you can see Proverbs 21.20 talks about this. It says that wise people save for the future, but foolish people spend whatever they get. Wise people save. And if you save and you have some excess, you can turn around and invest it however you want. You can invest it to make more so you can do something else with it. Or investing, it could just be I want to invest it in God's kingdom because I recognize reading through scripture that I'm supposed to do things for eternal purposes with what God has given me. But it's this concept of saving and then investing. And so when we look at it, that's really what we're supposed to do because nobody in this case here wants to be a fool. I promise, I don't even know your neighbor, but he doesn't want to be called that. Nobody wants to be. But I would say sometimes my eyes go to the second part of that passage says, but fools or foolish people spend whatever they get. I don't want to keep focusing on that. I want to look at the first part. It says wise people save for the future. That was the point here is to save. Save. We don't want to sit there and be somebody running out. We don't want to be somebody doesn't have because God has given us enough to do what God wants us to do. It's really a matter of us choosing to be good stewards of it and obeying him and doing that with it. When you don't have a plan, you don't have a budget, when you don't have a budget, you squander money. When you squander money, you overpay and you get into debt. When you get into debt, you don't have extra money. When you don't have extra money, you can't have anything for the future. And if you can't save and invest for the future, you'll be at the mercy of someone else the rest of your life and hope that they will take care of you the way that you would want. And that doesn't always work out well. This, this isn't a scary thing. This isn't, it's just a matter of saying, you know what? The scriptures talk about finances. Finances. Talk about discipleship. And I would say in order to be a a disciple of Christ, truly, we have to have a good grasp on what it means to have uh, good finances and understanding financial concepts because they do, because as I said earlier, money is vying for a place in our heart that we need to give to God. God says, I want to be that first place, but money and finances can be that alternative God that wants to creep in and take over because when that takes over then, what it says is, hey, now you've got all the money, you've got the finances, take care of yourself. And we just know from reading scripture that taking care of ourselves and looking at just that is not what God has called us to do. And so this message today was just strictly about saying, here it is that we're looking at dollars and making sense of what it is that scripture talks about. Because the polls showed that there wasn't anything really that people even came to church to find out about. And I'm not here to ask for money. We're not passing a plate saying, put more in. That's not it at all. We're just saying, what is it that God wants from us? What have you heard, and how can you help your neighbor learn what these concepts are? So, most of you didn't fidget too much or do anything else. we your neighbor, so I'm going to turn this back around now. And it's not just to say, I'm back to you, and now we're going to pass the plate. That's not it at all. <laughs> but I do want you to know that we do concern ourselves here at church about people And and understanding money and financial stewardship and what God's plan is. So much so that we preach about it, we talk about it. But we've offered courses here at our church about it also. About 11 years ago, we began something called Financial Peace University here at our church. I asked a couple of weeks ago, but how many of you have heard of it or have been through Financial Peace University before? Yeah, a, quite a few people in this room have. I would just say to you that it has been an incredible course that we have offered here at church. Now, some people may not ever need it, but even going in, they're like, we're good, and I know what the plans are and the principles, and I'm doing that. And praise God that you learned that early on. But a lot of people didn't, and a lot of people don't. And so this has been offered. We ran it for about, started about 11 years ago, but then we put it on hold about three and a half years ago because we got busy here at church. You guys remember we were doing a a rebranding Uh, building, or we were doing a refurbishment project, we were looking for a new pastor, we were doing 150th anniversary, a little thing called COVID popped up, I mean all these things that have kind of kept us out of the loop for a while, but it's time to start it back up again. And so what I want to do is I want you just to watch a, a video here, it's about a minute 45, that gives you a little bit of an overview of what financial peace is all about.
1: Financial peace. We all want it. For a while, I didn't have it. 20 years ago, I hit rock bottom. I lost just about everything. I turned to God for help, and I learned how to handle money His way. As you can imagine, it worked. That's why I started Financial Peace University, because God's ways work. Whether you're in over your head or you're doing okay right now, if you bring home $10,000 or $10 million, if you're 21 or 61, we all need a plan. Millions of people have been through Financial Peace University. They have success stories of their own. They've learned how to get rid of debt, prepare for generations to come, and give like crazy. Your success story, your financial piece is up to you. Now is your time. It's time to take control of your money. It's time to get ready for what God has for you. It's time for financial peace.
0: I just want you to, the, the point of that is, you know, yes, getting a hold of, of, of money and, and what you have been given to, to be a steward over, but as you hear from Dave Ramsey, that's who that gentleman was, or as you hear in what we talk about, this is a matter of saying, what is it that scripture has to say? What does God have to say concerning finances? He's the one that gave it to us. He's the one that laid out a plan. What does he have to say about it? Learn about that and do that because that's how we will succeed in the right way with our finances. So we're going to start that course two weeks from today. In Sunday afternoons, it'll be after church. Uh, I typically have run it from like 2 to 4 p.m. It's a time that we get together. We have something to eat. We sit down and go over what the, the information was from the previous week. We have a lesson that is learned. And there's some interaction so that we can learn from one another. Uh, we will spend those two hours together. You'll leave. You'll have some homework to go through and have an opportunity then to come back and begin to get those finances in order. If you are interested in it or you think your neighbor might be interested in it. I'm going to ask you to take that card that's in front of you. It's a connection card. Simply write your name on there and some way for me to contact you, name, phone number, something, and then right down at the bottom where it says notes, just write financial peace or financial class or put dollar sign, something that I know what it is. And then you could drop it in the offering plate on the way out today. And then I will get a hold of it and I will contact you here this week with more information about what takes place, how you get involved and all those other things. FPU starts two weeks here from today. I just want to end kind of with this. Jesus told his listeners that they needed to understand some things before making a decision. I want you to see and hear a commitment, uh, a prayer as such, that I want you to see and hear and, and to consider for yourself before you make some kind of a commitment to make some changes here on your finances. This isn't saying making a commitment to sign up for FPU. That's different. But just anybody here can say, I want to make sure that I have the right kind of finance. I want to talk about what it is that God, and I want to listen to what God's talking to me about on finances. And so I'm going to put a prayer commitment up on the board. I'm going to read through here. If it comes up, you'll see it. If not, I will read it. I want you to hear it, listen to it, And if it's something you say, yeah, I want to do that, at the end, just quietly tell God, amen. You agree that that's what you want and that that's what you'd like help with. Close your eyes, if you would, and listen to this prayer of commitment, and then you can respond to God accordingly at the end. Heavenly Father, based on what I know about you, God, money and biblical finances, I recognize that you, God, have provided me with material resources so that I might glorify you through the exercise of faithful stewardship over them. I will be held accountable for this stewardship. Therefore, I will diligently seek the Lord's advice in the way I earn money, spend it, use it to touch the lives of others, and to give it away for the support of God's work. If that's something you want to do, I just want you to say, God, yes, I want to do that. Help me. Help me to commit. Help me to make changes. Help me to ask questions, whatever it is. If that's where you're at, simply just ask God to help you with it. Lord God, I just want to say thank you again for this message and a chance to talk about uh, finances, talk about it how it applies to us, how it applies to our neighbor, and how it applies just to anyone who calls themselves a believer. Father, help us again to know what it is that we say we believe, but then also to make the transformation so that we can act and live that same way. We don't want to be Christian atheists. We want to be Christians who follow your word. Father, we thank you for giving us this message and this word. In your son's name I pray.